Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to our seminar this evening, uh, Models for Social Change, New Debate and Democracy. My name's Robert Gordon, and I'm the manager of St. Paul's Institute, and we're here this evening in conjunction with an organization, a charity called Our Democratic Heritage. Um, and you'll hear more about that soon. Uh, Dan is, is uh, chair, I believe, of the charity, and um, he will be speaking. Um, this session follows another one we had earlier this afternoon, which looked at the history of St. Paul's Cross in the early <coughs> modern period. So we skipped back about 500 years, discussed public discourse and, and preaching and debate around that time, and now we're jumping way forwards. Um, part of the impetus for being here, obviously, and as you'll see, we have Vika from Occupy London, is, is to try and make sense of this new wave of direct democracy that we're seeing um, both in our society but also around the world, or this, this new desire for it. Um, and we're hoping to explore various different ways that this is being done. Um, and please, in the discussion afterwards, do uh, chip in. Um, before I introduce to you our chair for this evening, I actually wanted to read you a short piece um, that I wrote which uh, went up on our website this morning and was inspired by today. Um, the reason I want to read this out is to just provide some kind of contextual framework through which you might consider some of the more practical discussions that the speakers are going to be talking about. And then I'll hand over to our, our very eminent chair. Um, the, the article I want to read out is called In Search of Authenticity. Now, as we continue to deconstruct truth narratives and question traditional crucibles of power, Many people are searching for new paradigms upon which to base collective hopes and dreams. Recent failures in our political and economic structures are not a new or unique tale, and a common response to such periods of social upheaval lies in the attempt to discover new levels of authenticity, to construct a discourse that speaks directly to the experience of the individual whilst encouraging commitment to a shared collective reality. The new modes of communication and organization that modern technology offers are a vital component of this search for authenticity through our newfound capacity to share information, canvas opinion, and subvert media and political narratives. At the same time, they often highlight that we consciously construct our social image in a way that is removed from an honest understanding of our own self-identity. We compartmentalize our lives and digitally craft an idealized version of ourselves, and we do this with increasing levels of detail and care. Thus, we have simultaneously developed the perfect medium for collectivism, but also the ideal tools for narcissism. With no shared commitment to integrating the various components of our lives, and indeed encouragement to do otherwise, we hide parts of ourselves further, we abstract further, we work upon shared ideas of goodness and righteousness, but often without having a genuine conversation about what these concepts mean to us, where they are generated, and how they might be achieved. So when thinking about socioeconomic progress, it is difficult to approach a sense of objective reality, but we can often do so by examining some pragmatic outcomes. The ongoing financial crisis is a manifestation of deep-seated social trauma, a severance from an imagined social cohesion that was displayed before the crisis that undermines previously accepted views of how we relate to one another. 
what it means to succeed, how we create value, and the meaning of wealth. The negative outcomes that we see lie in foreclosed homes, in unemployment, in political disenfranchisement, in exponentially increasing wealth disparity, in the detrimental impacts we are having on the environment, and in a widening of the gap between those who truly have autonomy and the ability to create authority, and those who must adhere, must submit to a global political reality that they have limited to capacity to escape the negative impacts of. As feelings of disenfranchisement broaden and begin even to envelop what we refer to as the middle class, the social malaise suddenly becomes palpable and can no longer be hidden as the anger and resentment transfers onto those who have more capacity to be heard. The call for authenticity comes from feelings of exploitation, subjection to external pressures, and the conscious realization of how political and economic structures are manipulated by those displaying predatory behavior to the detriment of social well-being. The social contract then begins to fall apart even in well-off societies, and we've seen evidence of this recently with the student protests since 2010 and the high street riots of 2011, precisely because there is no shared sense of enjoyment of social output, but rather a perceived blatant display of inequality and injustice, typified by feelings of cultural and political alienation and economic despair. For the London 2012 Olympics, we spectacularly succeeded at recreating the shared enjoyment of finding a modern mythology that enabled us to feel closer to the unified whole that we all subconsciously crave. And this is something that sports, as you know, in general is very good at. And yet, this enjoyment was underpinned by a high level of fear and mistrust, of security and paranoia. The sense that at any moment, the shared enjoyment could be stripped away and we could be left facing one another, judging one another, hiding from ourselves in the often monstrous, always imagined images of those we have no authentic relationship with. So we need to ask ourselves how we might formulate a new public discourse that releases this growing pressure and lack of trust. What structural models do we have that subvert illusory modes of communication and inherently disingenuous or ignorant relationships? Can we build an open and transparent form of policymaking in order that through wide-scale peer review, we come to find a more genuine sense of social reality? Can horizontal movements such as Occupy replace traditional power hierarchies? Or by doing so, might we actually move further away from a realistic understanding of what it means to relate to human beings, to live with and trust, to work for and, and or employ, to love and despise, the realities of charisma, persuasion and rhetoric, the realities of the power relationships that exist between us at all times in often imperceptible ways. With the human condition in mind, can a structure that encourages public unashamed honesty successfully promote the common good and allow well-being to flourish? Because surely not everything can be so forthright and raw and so what do we gain from a reliance on inauthentic discourse and obfuscated agendas? Is the search for this so-called authenticity itself another illusory creation, a utopian vision that is unattainable, no matter how desperately we might want to discover it? In the end, the answer might be that we don't really want to discover it at all, and I'd like you to think about this. For to do so will force us to make significant sacrifices 
and require us to deal with a more complex and difficult form of dialogue than we're used to having even with ourselves. Maybe we are not ready to truly commit to authenticity in public life, instead utilising the call for cultural change as just another mask that we wear to appear respectable and decent, whilst at the same time privately delighted in our personal comforts and narcissistic desires. So it's time to build up the courage to remove these masks, to stop ignoring the oppressive realities of the social order we create together every time we act, interact, or refuse to act. And so I'd just like you to think whether we can discover such authenticity, or are we too afraid of what we might find waiting for us if we do? And with that, I would like to introduce our chair this evening, uh, Canon Dr. Angus Ritchie, has for 14 years served as a priest in East London and has been involved in community organising. He is the director of the Contextual Theology Centre in East London and assistant chaplain for social action at Keble College, Oxford. Um, last year, the Contextual Theology Centre produced a pack to help churches hold community conversations, um, specifically about the financial crisis. And this was endorsed by the chapter of St Paul's Cathedral, Archbishop Rowan Williams, and even uh, Occupy London's Faith Liaison Group. Um, and he's also a, a very good friend of, of St Paul's Institute and has helped us uh, with our program of Clergy Learning Days, really trying to enhance the literacy of clergy and community mobilisation. So I, I have no doubt that you're in very safe hands. And I will hand over to Angus. Thank you. Thank you. As uh, I was talking about that gap between uh, image and reality, I struck that um, Contextual Theology Centre sounds a rather more grand and complex outfit than we really are. Our first uh, ever piece of correspondence uh, from the Inland Revenue of all people was addressed to the director of the Conjectural Theology Centre, <laughs> which uh, I hope is a rather different thing. I wasn't sure if it was the theology or the accounting. It was thought to be conjectural. But our, our work's very simple. We're interested in uh, the way that congregations uh, relate to and engage for transformation with uh, their neighbourhoods. And so uh, the subject matter tonight, models for social change, new debate and democracy, would be, is of great interest to uh, the congregations we work with uh, in London, particularly in East London. And many of the churches, including uh, the ones I've worked with, uh, are uh, involved in community organising. We'll hear shortly from uh, Neil Jameson about this movement and the way it brings religious and civic groups together uh, to build their power and to achieve very specific, tangible goals, I suppose, most notably uh, the London living wage. First, though, we're going to hear from Ludovica Rogers. Uh, this will be an opportunity to reflect. She's... Uh, the facilitator of General Assemblies and part of the Occupy London Media Group. So this will be uh, an opportunity almost 12 months on to reflect uh, on the events uh, around outside, some of them within this building connected with the Occupy camp. And I think just uh, certainly from the soundings of um, people I'm working with uh, in East London, a real sense um, at the time of, um, I think of excitement and the frustration, of excitement that somehow... Um, this activity had caught a moment where people were, whatever they thought of the rights and wrongs of setting up a camp, identified a real hunger for transformation from a surprisingly wide range of people, uh, a real sense of media attention on that, and a point at which 
um, people were in part looking to um, the church. You might remember the uh, what would uh, Jesus do um, banner. So um, perhaps a sense of excitement that led on to a sense of frustration. What was it that meant that didn't come together in the church and camp, giving a kind of ongoing, coherent uh, way of achieving transformation? What needs to happen now? What's the next steps? And as uh, Rob said, our centre is involved in helping churches think uh, about that. After we've heard from Ludwika and Neil, the discussion will be broadened out by uh, Dr. Sarah Hageman from the London School of Economics, um, and she'll be helping us to think about how elected politicians react to these and other movements by citizens for transformation, particularly at this time of financial crisis. And finally, in a contribution that will link this session to uh, what was going on this afternoon, the more historical seminar, we'll hear from Dr. Dan Plesch, rooting social action and democratic debate today in a celebration of our democratic heritage, including St. Paul's Cross uh, next to this cathedral. If you've ever been to uh, a London Citizens' Assembly, you'll know that uh, timekeeping is quite a theme, and at uh, Citizens' Assembly, as well as the chair, there will be a timekeeper ringing a bell. Um, we're going to be a little more contextual uh, and Anglican here, but David Barclay, um, who you may want to speak to afterwards because he's uh, involved in um, our work of helping churches hold these community conversations, he will simply uh, hold up a little note for the speaker a minute before uh, their time, saying, one minute to go, uh, because we want, it's really important that uh, we honour you both by finishing on time and by having time for debate and conversation. So I will... Uh, move on simply to uh, introducing our first speaker, Ludovica Rogers, who's played an active role in Occupy in London since the 15th of October and been involved in planning various aspects of the movement, General Assembly facilitation and media platforms in particular. Her mo main focus has been on the organisation of the internal communication of the movement, be it in meetings, assemblies or media. And she also continues in her profession as an architect. So thank you. So, uh, thank you for this invitation. Um, it's an opportunity for us from Occupy to talk about other aspects rather than the more visible ones of tents, but also about the practices that um, we've been involved in. Um, first of all, I have to say that <coughs> I'm not talking tonight on behalf of Occupy, but as simply someone who's been active in this movement and is still active in it. And this is important for us because of the fact that we're a non-hierarchical leaderless movement, and so we don't uh, recognize uh, a representation. Um, what I would like to do this evening is introduce, explain briefly the practices, uh, how we organize, uh, and I will be doing this going through a few statements that were approved about a year ago uh, on the steps of St. Paul's, um, and I will comment them briefly. And you can find the complete versions of these documents on our website, which is occupylondon.org.uk. Um, so I'll start with our initial statement, that, um, and the first point of our initial statement that says, the current system is unsustainable, it is undemocratic and unjust. We need alternatives. This is where we work towards them. So already in this first point of our statement, 
we highlight that Occupy isn't just about criticizing and protesting, but it's about searching for alternatives. And as we're criticizing the democratic system, the undemocratic system we're in, one of the um, activities, let's say, within Occupy has been also to experiment with democracy. And this is what it says, this is where we walk towards them, is also an acknowledgement that we don't have the answers already. The part of the process of Occupy is actually bringing people together from different practices, different backgrounds, and learning from each other and experimenting with different forms of democracy. Um, so, very briefly, uh, the way we organize is in assemblies that happen two days a week, mainly on Friday evenings, on Sunday afternoon. They're open to everyone. They're in public spaces. Everyone has the right to talk. There's usually a facilitator that moderates the assembly. Uh, we also have meetings. Um, also, they're open to everyone. They talk, they're organized around specific topics or organizing events. And we have our media platforms. I won't go into depth on our media platforms because it's a topic in itself, but if I've been very involved in them, so if there are any questions regarding that, I'm happy to answer them. Um, so what, um, what I would like to argue this evening is uh, not only the importance of uh, the decision-making processes that we use, but actually the moment and the, the meetings that happen before this. Um, so in most of our, in other assemblies, we always use consensus, and also in our meetings, most of the cases, we use some form of consensus. Uh, we use a very basic language, which is hand signals, you're seeing it in some of the photos, but also we uh, use agreed practices. And these practices were agreed in a document uh, that is called, the, we call it the safer space policy, and I would just like to read a few points from it. Open discussion is at the heart of Occupy and our decision-making processes. The more people we can involve in our debates, the stronger and more representative the results will be. Occupy London wants to operate and conduct our discussions in a safe, anti-oppressive space, whether offline or online, that is welcoming, engaging and supportive. In order to ensure this, we feel it necessary to establish some guidelines for participants. Now, already here, we can see one of the um, difficulties that we've had in Occupy. So if I have to be critical about the movement, it's always been very hard for us to find a balance between inclusivity and, um, inclusivity and creating a safe space. So often, if we wanted to include everyone, there would be people that felt unsafe. And uh, by creating a safe space, sometimes you were forced to exclude people. Um, so... Uh, going on, one of the first points says, recognize that we try not to judge, put each other down, or compete. Now, I would like to use this to explain a bit more about consensus and decision-making. So, um, if we imagine uh, going to a meeting or to a, an assembly where decision-making is based on um, majority vote, we, we arrive at a meeting with um, wanting to defend our position, uh, competing with the other part, um, and so promoting our own position and trying to demolish the, the position of the other person. If we arrive at a meeting and we know that the final decision will be um, decided by consensus, 
then the attitude is completely different. And we know that we have to come to that meeting with a collaborative attitude uh, and that the solution will be found through dialogue and not competition. Um, so, but for this to happen, we need a culture of respect. So foster a spirit of mutual respect. Listen to the wisdom everyone brings to the group. Now this is very important. We need to respect um, the voice of everyone who's affected by that decision that we're going to be taking together and understand the position of everyone. Um, and this means... Um, uh, well, I'll go on. I wanted to make some examples, but I don't have time, so I'll go on. Um, avoid assuming the opinions and the identification of other participants. If in doubt, ask. Now, a lot of the issues that occur in, um, in, in trying to come to common agreements, a lot of the problems come from misunderstanding what the other person wants to say. But not only misunderstanding, but interpreting it in a way based on um, the judgments we make on that person. And so we tend to associate and listen uh, more, and look at more where that person is coming from than what is actually being discussed. Um, so we, look, we tend to look at like what group they're from, uh, what intentions they might have behind what they're asking, rather than focusing on actually what the issue is. So what we've learned is that it, if we manage to detach from this, it's much easier to collaborate. Um, but this also um, means that each of us has to be aware of what we bring with us. So be aware of the language you use in discussion and how you relate to others. Be conscious that people may understand your words differently than you intend. Be aware of the space you take up and the positions and privileges you bring, including racial, class, and gender privileges. Try to communicate clearly and use plain language. Remember, Occupy aims to be the movement of the 99%, so be mindful of diverse backgrounds and perspectives. So you'll see that I've used a very simple language as well in this uh, talk. But for us, it's very important that everyone that comes to a meeting understands what we talk about. They don't feel that the language that we're using is overcomplicated. And this, for us, is more than simply talking about a, a meeting or a way to assemble, but it's a, it's a criticism to, the, to the, the system we're in, where there is an, a use of an overcomplicated language from the point of view of politics, economics, and that helps to create this distance between the people and uh, the issues, as we feel that we cannot participate actively in them. And finally, whilst ground rules are collective responsibility, everyone is also personally responsible for their own behaviour. Now this brings me back to the beginning. So, Occupy isn't about just looking out and criticising what is out there. It's a lot about ourselves. It's a lot about learning these things and, look, and improving the way we as individuals communicate. So these guidelines aren't there for, so that someone from above can control that we respect them. These are guidelines that we all have to learn and to um, acknowledge and be aware of to be able to communicate with other people. And what I, I'm, so I'm, I think what I, I would like, I'm trying to say is that democracy isn't only about how we make decisions, but it's really about a, a completely uh, change in the culture in which we communicate. Thank you. Thank you so much.
Jameson. Neil is the founding director of Citizens UK and the lead organiser of London Citizens, with 21 years of experience building, funding and sustaining diverse broad-based citizens organisations. He's developed and taught Citizens UK's community organising curriculum to over 3,000 local leaders drawn from some of the country's most disadvantaged areas. He's also established the first guild of professional guild of community organisers, which has successfully attracted and supports over 25 full-time organisers working with religious and civic groups in membership in cities up and down the country. And The Guardian has identified him, if all that wasn't enough, as one of the 100 most significant public servants in the country. So, Neil, good to have you here. Thank you. Thank you, Chair. Thank you, uh, St Paul's Institute. Nice to see some familiar faces in the, in the crowd, in the assembly, in the gathering, in the collective. And uh, good uh, for St Paul's Institute to, in a way, have two contrasting speakers who will present two different stories, effectively, occupying ourselves. Uh, you've heard who I am, really. It'd be very interesting to know who you are, if that's all right. I mean, be to know who's in an institution. We believe in institutions, particularly civil society institutions. So if you don't mind, if this isn't going to compromise anybody. Could you raise your hand if you go to church here? Okay, thank you. Anybody in a trade union? Okay, anybody in a, um, a refugee group? Okay, of the churches, anybody Catholic? Anybody Pentecostal? Methodist, I know there's one here, yes. Uh, anybody in a guild, in the corporation guild? Okay. Uh, anybody in a, a allotment society? Anybody a school governor? Okay, good. Well, thanks for what you do. That's the main thing to say. It's very important that we join, that uh, <coughs> we come together and we do our best to discover what democracy is in practice, in the, da in the daily grind. Uh, I suppose I'm I want to focus on civil society. We're a, not a religious organization, Citizens UK. We started 23 years ago, and our, our preoccupation now, if not then, is in civil society. We think this is where most of you come from, I guess, although you have lots of different hats. It's a different sector to the market and the state, and civil society needs to understand it has a different interest to the market and the state, to have technicians who help it, to have institutes that serve its purpose, to have people who know whose side they're on, because in a way we do have to take sides. Civil society is the side of families, it's the side of children, it's the side of education, it's the side of the nurturing of the human condition. The market is the side effectively that also does nurture people, but it does have a particular purpose, as occupying no more than anyone else, I guess, which is to, to make profit uh, by selling goods and so on, and employing us, it has its role. The state has a side too. We often forget that we created the state. Civil society created the state. I have to say that many, many times because most people don't believe it. But it was our idea that there should be some sort of governance and we decided to get people elected along the way in all sorts of different ways. And we mostly forget that the state came from us. We are reminded of that at election time, but that's really not enough. So um, one thing we definitely are now is an arm of civil society. Citizens UK is an arm of civil society, not of the state. We do not take money from the state. We've now got a budget of £2 million, which we take from you. So one reason for doing this talk is if your institution is not in membership of London citizens, please join us. We are better together. Everybody says that, but frankly, most of our experiences is a struggle to persuade people that, that is the reality of the case. London Citizens is an affiliate member of Citizens UK. We're building citizens organisations in other cities now because people somehow are getting this argument that, frankly, civil society is different. 
all of those sectors, the state and the market, are very important and they need to be balanced by, not umpired by, but if one of those sectors is weak, doesn't know its interest, is fractured and prone to schism and collapse and intrigue, that's us, then the other sectors get away with murder, so to speak. The other sectors do know their interest much better than we do. The state is a bit all over the place, particularly at election time. But between election times, frankly, they're much more aware of what they exist for. We're not so sure. So 23 years ago, I and a few others, and now absolutely with Angus and lots and lots of others, thousands of other people are trying to construct both the argument that civil society is different, not better than, but different, but very, very, very important for the nurturing of people and for the people themselves to feel that they are citizens and to understand how to be citizens by being ideally, which is the key to what we do, in institutions that protect us from being completely out of control. The role of civil society institutions is to round our corners, in my experience. Built into our constitution is the development, we exist to develop the capacity of the people of Britain to participate in public life, that's one. Uh, charity agreed target and the second one is to strengthen the institutions people come from in the process. So we are bound in for 23 years and we have no problem with this at all in institutional development and we don't mind the institutions to a certain extent. There's one or two we wouldn't have in membership but frankly there's a hell of a lot that don't join us because they don't join us. Because we charge, we charge. We proudly charge people of 2,000, 3,000 pounds, not people, institutions to join us because that's where the core of our money comes from. We're owned by our members, and we teach our members how to be leaders. So we believe that there are leaders, and leaders are very important. It doesn't the people on the telly necessarily. It's the woman on the corner store that makes the difference when there is a trouble around there, and everybody turns to her. The definition of a leader for us is somebody with a following. We think that's historic, and that's very, very important. They may have the wrong sort of following, but that's, we need to be discerning about that. But a leader is somebody with a following, not a good idea not uh, the microphone necessarily, not the, in the TV studio, but of somebody who has nurtured their following and enjoys developing people in that process. So that's the, that's the argument, I guess, which is that uh, civil society is different, but London Citizens has proved over the last 15 years here that it's possible to get 250 institutions into dues-paying membership and then come up with an agenda, a multi-issue agenda of concerns and issues that we can agree on, democratically, we vote, um, con consensus is very important, but bottom line, as a Quaker, I know it don't often we, the only thing we can agree on is fair trade coffee, and we don't necessarily agree on that. But <laughs> frankly, in public life, you've got to move fast, because the global market moves faster than we do. And in a global market, for us not to be content with compromise, which is what we teach people is very important, is to miss a trick. We're left behind by the fast-moving global market, which is why London Citizens meets regularly, has chapters that are at a borough level, at a neighbour level, that levels of um, decision-making are substantial. But we do believe we have to get on with it because our interests are being trampled upon by the other interests of the other two sectors. A uh, little story to finish with, our mate chair. Were you around on Waterloo, uh, at Waterloo on Sunday, um, 7 o'clock actually, quarter to 7, you would have seen an interesting gathering of people uh, waiting for a coach to come. They were predominantly black, African black, frankly. Uh, I was there too, uh, and uh, those of us who are in membership of London Citizens were getting on a coach and we were going to Brighton. Uh, they were from institutions, they were from the Congolese Support Group, they were from the Zim United, the Zimbabwean diaspora that has come together 
uh, with some help from ourselves. They were from the Chinese community that had begun to organize to be political rather than um, keep their heads down effectively. They were from some of our churches and our other institutions that have fought to get the role of migrants and the British tradition of migration recognized much better. But we were going a place which not many places that people would have gone to necessarily because the weather was terrible, but also because it was in Brighton and it was to the Liberal Democrat Conference. And we were going to say thank you. We went down, we were given 20 minutes on the stage. If you want to go on our website, there's an image of this happening, this remarkable chance for civil society to be gracious and say thank you to the politicians who stand up for things and if they promise to do something as the Lib Dems in 2010 when we gathered our great general election assembly with 2,500 people and the party leaders came to us and they responded to our agenda two years ago Mr. Clegg and Mr. Cameron said and Mr. Brown said that they would abolish children in immigration detention centers and a year after the election indeed that's what they did that's when we have to be gracious civil society people and say thank you uh, the liberal democrats said that was this was on sunday the highlight of the whole convention to have people coming who don't look like them saying thank you very much for what you've done you did it you said you'd do it and you have done it and we know you've done it because we're monitoring you that was very, very important. We came back on the coach singing African songs and celebrating the diversity that we are, but we made a difference in that process, and people felt better about themselves as a result of that. And they grew as citizens in that process. They learned that they had to work with other people. They learned compromise. They learned that you do need politicians to take us civil society seriously. And I think I, they take us seriously because we organize, because we are organized. If we're not organized, how do they know what we think? When we launched the Strangers into Citizens uh, campaign, we met with the, one of the immigration ministers at the time, and he said that nobody can uh, possibly raise the issue of the long-term irregular migrants who live here. It's political suicide to mention it, or even to say we think something should be done about it. That was very helpful. Effectively, he said, if you go out and you create enough fuss, then we have to respond in a democracy, and we're blessed by being in a democracy, friends. Uh, then it works if we organize. It works. If we don't organize and we just Twitter, which is the opposite of organizing, frankly, uh, then they don't respond because they don't know who to respond to. They can't respond to, they shouldn't respond to individuals. They should respond to groups of organized, decent, peace-loving, voting family people who have their place and know what our issues are and know that actually if we don't work with other people, we lose the argument. Thank you very much. nicely to this broader question of uh, how indeed politicians uh, do respond, how do um, elected politicians respond to uh, these two movements we've heard about and other movements in civil society for social change. So um, it gives me a great pleasure to introduce Dr Sarah Hagerman, lecturer in EU politics at the London School of Economics and Political Science, where she joined the European Institute in September 2009. In her work, Sarah draws on a mix of academic and policy experience as she has held research and policy positions in Brussels, Copenhagen and London. She's also the founder of VoteWatch.eu, an online initiative that monitors EU decision-makers' voting records and is now used extensively by journalists, politicians and the general public. Sarah, it's good to have you with us. Thank you very much, and thank you for the invitation, and I hope you will um, let me sit down while I talk, because I am nine months pregnant, so I also get very much out of breath, which is why I might uh, sound a bit um, 
even agitated at times, but I'm okay and I will uh, sort of share a few thoughts with you as well as some observations from my academic research and my work in the policy world. So this is coming from a little bit of a different angle from, let's say, within the institutions. And I'll try and make four key arguments um, in what I want to say now. But first of all, I want to say that I think that what has been discussed already and highlighted is very much, of course, reactions to political systems that are in crisis at the moment in Europe. There's a lack of legitimacy, a lack of trust in the institutions. But on the other hand, um, politicians and practitioners are finding it very difficult to see how they can best meet the demands and actually have a great sense of responsibility in developing their um, both processes but also the content of their work. So I would like to state that from this perspective what I'm going to say now is basically a support for the political systems um, traditionally but at the same time that it's clear that they are really in a process where new tools are needed and where new identities and cultures are perhaps not necessarily presenting themselves so quickly as they do in the civil society. So my first um, argument is that parliamentary systems in Europe in general at the moment, they see a lack of trust that comes out both in election time but also now in the civil society debates and the, in the movements. And they will have a need for going back to basics. Many uh, politicians also in this country have stated that, but what does that really mean? The problem for politicians today is that they face a challenge that has to do with um, increased specialization of the political uh, debates, of the civil society, of the markets, um, of the political sphere in general. They are confronted with challenges from beyond the borders as well as from within the borders. That also is expressed in the fact that we have more and more of a multi-level governance system. We see decentralization and centralization effects at different times um, and have seen that change a lot in the last few decades depending on what public discourse you have from both governments but also from civil society groups. And that shifts the power structures uh, both nationally, domestically, uh, sorry, regionally or at a European level. We've seen that this means different things to different parts of Europe, but for example, here in this country, we've seen that in the Parliament, there's um, stronger emphasis on, for example, the expertise and the resources inside Parliament, in committees, in how individual MEPs are supposed to respond to the public. What I'm trying to say here is that the trends are conflicting in Europe, but we are moving from uh, a time where we had collective responsibility through parties, and I was almost tempted to ask you after Neil's question of how many of you are members of political parties, but that we had collective accountability through parties, and that is shifting to now we have more of a direct link between um, um, the elected representatives and the voters, and there's a demand from that in the public discourse. 
This brings a challenge for the uh, democratic systems um, in the parliaments, because who is it that the parliamentarians have to be responsible towards and accountable to? Is it the parties and the work that they do in specialized committees, in the plenary, etc., or is it really to their constituencies that might be a much more defined and smaller group? So the accountability question in the political systems at the moment um, are very much um, being challenged. And I think that it's extremely important for the political systems to try and strike a balance where we have efficiency in the systems at the same time as um, accountability structures in place that meet these new challenges from various levels of society. <clears throat> the other point I want to make is that while we have a lot of new tools available um, to the markets and to civil society in terms of getting attention um, and for how to bring about single case issues in the political discourse, this is a great challenge to the political systems. So we might have social media playing a big role for highlighting certain issues, but that's not necessarily uh, the place for politicians to play their more broader political agendas and actually be efficient in the political decision-making they have to engage with. At the same time, however, there are a number of very positive developments uh, with new tools available, um, such as, for example, the fact that we can have um, public insight into how uh, elected representatives vote. We have that less here in this country, but other places in Europe have by now included um, public voting so that you can know what records your politicians really have from when they, for example, when they run their election campaigns, you know what they stand for and debates can be based on that and we've seen a great increase in how media is using these kind of information. We can also see what kind of roles committees plays, play in parliamentary system by now and that's of course where a lot of important legislation come from uh, inside the parliaments. So these tools are very much um, they're new, but they are also very much bringing a different kind of accountability structure that can um, overcome some of these issues of uh, efficient decision-making while also having insight into individual MPs' behavior. So um, the challenge, as I would uh, frame it here, is that transparency and the new tools that are available in this sphere have to be evaluated in terms of what accountability uh, benefits they bring to the public debate. Um, and we can see that the end outcome of, for example, legislative decisions made in committees and in, in, in parliaments are definitely a very important uh, aspect here, while other, um, while researchers have questioned the use of social media, etc in terms of the accountability of legislative politics as such. Um, my third argument here uh, will be that we're seeing a lot of new actors also in the formal sense appearing in legislative politics. So because of financial and economic crises in Europe 
as well as political crises, both at national and European level, there is this emphasis on having new institutions appear to oversee the financial markets, the behavior of um, some national political systems, um, the greater cooperation across boundaries, etc. And again, I will emphasize that um, we might need to go back to basics rather than necessarily have to reinvent new actors because these things often happen on paper but it might be that it's with the same kind of discourse as we've seen it from the traditional systems. So rather than um, necessarily putting new layers of governance from a European level or from bottom-up uh, local level in the oversight of the parliamentary systems and governance systems at domestic level, um, one could emphasize instead the use of the traditional structures but look at how they are being used at the moment because we do see a lack of trust in those and reactions are not necessarily the right ones to simply throw them away. Lastly, and I'll be very brief, um, is that um, of course the political systems also in the parties etc. are part of an organic process. It's not a end in itself to say that we have established certain rules for when a political system is accountable or transparent, but these things have to happen in parallel to what happens in civil society. That's not necessarily how politicians themselves will state the, uh, the political systems and their objectives, and I think that it's an important objective for the civil society to continue to challenge this what does it mean to have a transparent political system? When can we say that we are sufficiently involved at the different stages of uh, policy making? And what is it really that falls to the state to legislate on? But what is it that also has to be helped by civil society groups, both the ones that are formally organized and those that are less formally uh, recognized in the systems? Thank you very much. So having had a look at these issues through the lens of um, political science, we're now going to uh, have a look at them um, with a more historical perspective. Uh, Dr. Dan Plesch is a founder of the charity Our Democratic Heritage, which has uh, been jointly responsible for this seminar and the earlier one which focused on the history of St. Paul's Cross. Two of his ancestors, James Watson and Richard Moore, helped draw up the People's Charter in the 1930s and campaigning. Eighteen, I beg your pardon. <laughs> yes. Centuries matter in history. Uh, and campaign against the Stamp Act. He's a director of the Centre for Institutional Studies and Diplomacy at SOAS. And his recent books are A Case to Answer in 2003, Seeking the Impeachment of Tony Blair over Iraq, The Beauty Queen's Guide to World Peace, and America, Hitler, and the UN. First of all, I want to thank uh, St Paul's uh, Institute and uh, the Cathedral as such for partnering with us a, uh, a tiny, uh, almost virtual, uh, little educational charity. Uh, and I particularly want to thank our, our speakers this morning and this evening for uh, tremendous uh, contributions. Um, if there are two things I would hope you could take away uh, concretely uh, from uh, what I have to say, 
the first is that it would be a, a good idea if the uh, social, political, democratic heritage around the cathedral, uh, around the uh, printing and publishing industry uh, in this uh, area became a vibrant part of, uh, of our national life. Um, critical events in the Reformation, in uh, the announcing of the uh, Armada, all the way uh, through uh, uh, back into uh, Magna Carta happened in this area, and it is invisible that anything of that kind happened. Um, the second is, uh, is connected. It is that we think in our, our little charity and in, in conversation that uh, it was fine to celebrate the royal wedding. Um, we went to Hyde Park with the children. Um, my daughter wanted to know why she wouldn't get quite a big, such a big wedding, um, and thought that wasn't particularly right that she wouldn't. Uh, we didn't get into the whole question of weddings. Um, <coughs> it's tremendous that we came together to celebrate the Olympics, uh, as we did. Uh, can we not celebrate our freedoms and our democracy and debate them as a country. Now we have the Magna Carta anniversary coming up in 2015, but next year, uh, happily, Magna Carta Day falls on a Saturday. We will be holding in Bloomsbury a, a Magna Carta event, a Magna Carta party, and we would hope that those people individually and institutionally, uh, that you would go away and think it might be a jolly good idea to have a Magna Carta event and party in yourselves next year so when it comes to 2015, there is a wave of, uh, of activity. So those are two takeaway um, ideas to say at the, at, the, at, the, at the start. As I said, we are indebted to, to Robert and Peter for helping us bring these events together. I'm deeply indebted to my colleagues in our democratic heritage, particularly the student group, um, mostly students at Royal Holloway and Public History, who uh, recently, as part of the dissertations, held a conversation, an acted uh, um, conversation between uh, King Charles and a level of guard in the banqueting house on Whitehall, um, and previously had had a, a suffragette walking tour along the embankment to Westminster uh, as a part of a little attempt to start to reintroduce uh, our democratic heritage into our mainstream. <coughs> now, I come to... Um, these issues and it's a pleasure to be involved in something which both looks at the history and the past and the future from having been active in such movements since the 1970s at school looking back I found myself I was raising money for the miners strike of 1972 and the three-day week um, writing letters about uh, electric pylons of Hadrian's Wall and fox hunting um, in the 1970s uh, went on, trained as a community worker on Alinsky Principles in Nottingham, but then found myself uh, drawn up in CND movement and went from there to, as a researcher to Washington and uh, founded and, and led uh, an anti-nuclear research group. And so one thing I would say, partly in response to civil society, is do not think you simply have to stay in your community. You can uh, think globally and act globally. Um, you don't, don't simply have to think globally and act locally. I was encouraged by the uh, late and I would say much lamented Robin Cook to write um, some thoughts uh, on um, a progressive and more peaceful century after 9-11. And one of the ideas there, 
is represented in our democratic heritage. But a couple of them I just want to mention in passing because they uh, speak to what our uh, earlier speakers were, were mentioning. Um, the first is I don't think one can have this conversation without talking about the disastrous effects of neoliberal economics uh, as a global entity, uh, as a totalitarian uh, economic system, broadly speaking. And that at the heart of it, you have a, a fundamental breach of the social contract of um, shareholder ownership not going with any responsibility. It isn't a question of shareholder rights. It's a question that they, you can put your money on the roulette table and walk away regardless of the consequences. That, one, which I examine and we examined academically as well, is, I think, an issue of social justice that actually needs to be brought to, to the fore. Secondly, on the question of democracy, and this is where I get into history, and I have to say I somewhat annoyed one of Her Majesty's knighted um, representatives in New York by talking about, really, he was the equivalent of the, uh, uh, in the Middle Ages, we weren't content to send the second clerk from the town council to the court. Uh, when we, Parliament first became real, People were elected from the community to the centre of power. And then that centre of power became contentious with the, with the power of the monarch. And that is a huge part of the history of the evolution of democratic culture. Now, the centres of power are in Brussels, in Washington, in New York, in Geneva. And we send the third town clerk, <laughs> Sir Bufton Tufton, who does an extremely good job on behalf of the system we have. We do not directly elect, as a nation, the people we send to these institutions. And that, to my mind, is something that we should start to do because there's no rule that says you can't. Many reforms of international institutions require a consensus and changes of constitutions. To change who you send uh, requires no such rules. So these are my observations on a couple of the comments that we've heard earlier. As I said, my own uh, route into this came from the fact that almost by chance I discovered the uh, history mentioned earlier that two of my ancestors had been involved and repeatedly thrown in jail for campaigning for the freedoms that we now enjoy. And they are more or less uh, in invisible and indeed their work. There's a very nice Thai restaurant on the modern um, Paternoster Square but nothing to celebrate them or much, much else of our democratic heritage. Um, we celebrate our monarchs, our scientists, our artists, uh, but what of the people who uh, gave us our freedoms? If you go to the US, they do this rather better. There are uh, walks in Boston, there are freedom trails of uh, slavery. Uh, the French are rather better at it. Here, there are fragments. The suffragettes have got a recent fashion, which is great. Um, there are little bits at uh, Putney. Um, but overall, it is not a theme in our society. Um, we uh, look at um, the list of UNESCO World Heritage Sites, and it's tremendous that Sydney Opera House is a World Heritage Site. It is tremendous that Kew Gardens is a World Heritage Site. But our culture has not said that Runnymede should be, <laughs> even Runnymede, which in a sense is at the heart of the Anglo-American political project. Uh, and the only monument there was put up by the American Bar Association. So much for the 
uh, English sense of its, of its history and pride, and let alone um, Paternoster Square, um, Paul, Paul's Cross, which was at the heart of political ferment for so many centuries. Um, this is not. So if uh, Sydney Opera House and Kew Gardens <laughs> can be World Heritage Sites, perhaps we should think it would be a good idea that Runnymede and St Paul's and Pathmaster Square were. And perhaps we could start to uh, focus our discussions a little bit on that. And as I said, Magna Carta Day, um, where there is, I think, about one signature on an uh, online petition at Downing Street to say that this should be a bank holiday, um, should we not be uh, make this part of our, our discourse and our discussion? And should we not, you know, whether it's uh, whatever your political disposition, uh, Magna Carta is something that can bring us together to debate and discuss what we think our freedoms are, such as they are, what threats they may be, regardless of where we stand on the political spectrum. And that uh, means, perhaps, can start to give us some self-confidence about our democratic heritage. And why do I care about it? Well, you've only got to look at uh, the uh, mainstream uh, energy in our society on cultural heritage. Our regiments go off to battle, um, and they presumably fight better because they know what happened 200 years ago to that regiment. When we go on our demonstrations, there are very few of us who know of our heritage. My colleagues from uh, the students who came down and investigated um, and talked to, to Occupy, there was very little sense that this was an historic occasion. And casting our minds back 18 months, how different would that culture have been if it hadn't just been a few people around Occupy, but if there had been a sense overall that this was a great uh, centre of our political and democratic culture. I think it would have been slightly different, actually. And I think if we get a greater sense of our democratic heritage, then we will have a better chance of holding on to our freedoms in the future. So as somebody much greater than I once said, if you have been, thanks for listening. I'm not sure what implications it has that this uh, seminar is being chaired by a Scot who grew up next to the site of the Battle of Culloden. I feel that could lead us in a whole set of directions that uh, we probably don't want to go in. But um, just to help us digest, we've just obviously heard this reminder about um, this question of what stories do we tell of our past, of where we've come from, and how does that help us or hinder us in navigating uh, the future? We've then, before that, heard from Sarah um, setting out a bit more structurally um, the challenges uh, facing democracy, the ways that uh, the crisis of trust in our parliamentary system and the issues that that generates. Uh, and before that, we heard those two specific examples of ways in which people have been acting for social change. Community organising, hearing from Neil about the centrality of institutions, those holders of relationships and of vision, and also the importance of the willingness to compromise. And from Ludovica, about the way that Occupy has sought to model um, a, just whole, a whole way of being together and uh, having conversations. Um, it's been a lot to digest. 
um, if that's not too insensitive a thing to say to a group who may not yet have had their dinner. But um, to aid your digestion of at least these ideas, I think it would be good if we just, if you turned in twos and threes and just had a, a couple of minutes, because there's been so much um, from the front, to talk to your neighbour about what questions do these presentations raise for you and for the context in which you might want to act, and then we'll take some questions and have a discussion. But uh, if I can uh, encourage you just to talk to your neighbours for a moment um, about the issues that have been raised.